Hi, it's Toby with one of my brief jargon busters for the conversation you're about to hear. My two guests this week both work at the European Commission, um, which, like any big organisation, I suppose, has invented a bucket load of jargon. Most of it they're very good at explaining, but there's one acronym that they throw around a bit too casually, I think, without explanation, which is DG. It stands for Directorate General. Uh, which is basically what the commission calls its departments, akin to a, a government department or whatever. Um, and one of the commission's DGs is the Joint Research Centre, or JRC, which is where both of my guests today are based. The other thing I should quickly say, which is always the case on this podcast, um, is that I'm grateful to guests for bringing their own perspectives and opinions and speaking freely, um, which makes the episodes much more interesting in my view. But it does mean that um, the guests do not present the official views of their employers, in this case, the European Commission. They bring their own personal perspectives on the work they do, which I always think makes it sound like something really juicy coming up. Um, And who knows, maybe there is. You'll have to listen to the end to find out. Okay, on with the show. Hello, welcome back to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Drs. Christian Krieger and Stein Velayen. Both of these guests work on Science for Policy topics at the European Commission's Joint Research Centre, uh, which I suppose in itself is enough of a qualification to merit a conversation on this podcast, but it gets better because their work focuses in particular on analysing and understanding and mapping the very diverse range of science advice structures and approaches that exist in various corners of Europe at all levels, um, and also to strengthening them or at least helping to. So Dr. Krieger has an academic background in risk governance across disciplines uh, with research stints at King's College London, among other prestigious venues. Uh, And Dr. Verleyen is a linguist by training who now coordinates the European Commission's projects Science Meets Parliaments and Science Meets Regions, and in his spare time, I'm told, also teaches wine tasting. So, Christian and Stein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Hello. Good afternoon. Okay, let me kick things off this way. Um, Since COVID, I've been aware, I think we've all been aware, that there are quite a few of these projects going on to consolidate and evaluate what we know about science advice, both across the board and also in different parts of the world. Um, I'm thinking especially of projects like the ESCAPE project based in the US, which friend of the show, Roger Pilker, is coordinating. Um, I mean, I guess this just seems like an obvious opportunity to be doing it. And when it comes to Europe, the European Commission looks quite well placed to do that. And, uh, and lo and behold, you are. So perhaps I can ask you to outline what exactly you are working on in this space. So um, it was in in early 2020 when we launched a project called Science for Policy Ecosystems uh, at the JRC um, that is focusing on mapping the structures and processes and networks that are underpinning the use of scientific knowledge in in policymaking within EU member states. And um, this has advanced now quite a bit. So we have held 10 workshops with a total of 500 participants. We have run a survey with 300 respondents, and all of this is aiming, as I said, mapping what kind of organizations and actors are out there, how they collaborate or not, and on what kind of procedural basis all this is is taking place. 
And maybe as, a, as, a, as another equally important goal, it's not only the mapping, but we're also trying to stimulate capacity building action on the ground. Okay. Well, if I may step in here, I think Christian gave a, an excellent overview of the broad picture. Uh, let me just clarify uh, my specific angle to this, because this is actually a, a joint endeavor, a collaborative endeavor between different units within the JRC. Uh, within my unit, uh, we've been coming to this from the angle of our uh, project that you already mentioned in the intro, Toby, which is Science Meets Regions, actually also Science Meets Parliaments. Um, um, and this project is about um, extending JRC's support to uh, science for policy beyond the EU bubble and bring it to member states and regions. And we've been focusing more and more on the regional and uh, local level. So trying to um, help um, build capacity at local and regional level for local and regional authorities to better use um, uh, scientific evidence in their policymaking uh, processes. So our angle has been specifically at the um, sub-national level, and we've been uh, we've also had a workshop in in March this year specifically on these on this regional dimension. All right. So now, although you're working on projects with with slightly different focuses, you both mentioned workshops as the main uh, method that you're using here, and Christian mentioned a survey. Yeah, these are indeed the key methods we are using. So the workshops are very interactive workshops in which we bring together different stakeholders in the science policy interface. So representatives of academies, of ministries of science, of other ministries, uh, think tanks, uh, academic institutions, scientific councils, etc. And we are, we are basically um, sending them into smaller group discussions with the following questions. Uh, what's in place in a certain country? What works well? Uh, what doesn't work so well and for what reasons? And what's needed to actually improve the systems? And then uh, this survey is focusing on general qualities of science for policy ecosystems. So we have been asking about the level of fragmentation, uh, the level of openness to new players, funding, uh, the understanding of policymakers of academic research. These are just a few examples of, of what we, we inquired about. Yeah, and um, as far as, as science meets regions then specifically is concerned, um, there as well, the keyword is, is participatory approaches. So what we've been doing in the past and are going to continue doing is, is um, working with regions and cities and establish participatory processes. And one particularly successful tool there has been the so-called innovation camp, um, which is a participatory methodology that has been developed by the JRC in a slightly different context, namely that of the uh, smart specialization uh, strategies uh, for regions throughout Europe. Um, but we've been using it in, in the context of uh, science meets regions as a tool that brings people, that brings stakeholder categories together, a tool which allows us to recognize and value the importance of different perspectives on a policy issue. So as to come to a, uh, I would say, richer meaning of evidence as not just purely scientific data, but contextualized, um, locally embedded uh, knowledge whereby all the, the stakeholders in a particular policy issue are uh, closely involved in the, the genesis of a solution to these uh, policy issues. Uh, so this is uh, an approach that we uh, value very much and that we will continue to pursue in the future of the project, which is uh, being launched uh, in 2021. 
And, and maybe just to to give you an idea of, of one of the master plans that, that are behind this, because we've been talking a lot about participation and, and stakeholders. And the idea is, okay, to, is, is really to form a community of professionals from all across Europe that are engaged in these processes so that they know each other, so that they can work together, find common solutions. Because what I think the COVID crisis has also shown is that these systems are quite fragmented and there's very little connection between them, very little coordination. And this was one of, one of the problems of getting the right science to the right people at the right moment. Um, so, so here's our sort of effort to better connect the systems across Europe and, and even within the member states itself. Mm. So I introduced you as um, responsible for ecosystem mapping, essentially. But it sounds like, in fact, it's not just fact-finding. There's also this extra element where you're trying to build the community or, or build capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, especially um, when we look at the sub-national level, I think there's there is really a need for capacity building there, and uh, we try to do this with the modest. I mean, it's it's kind of seed funding, but it is there is a bit of financial support, but there's mainly also methodological support in in terms of these participatory approaches that we've been using, and and also uh, direct scientific support because the JRC um, has a lot of research to offer that is relevant to to member states, to regions, and uh, cities. Right. So if the JRC is putting taxpayers' money into this, I mean, I have to ask, other than out of the goodness of your hearts, uh, why do this? Why does the JRC? Uh, whose mission is to do science for the European Commission, essentially. Why does it care about what goes on in individual countries, even much less individual cities and regions? Well, well, I think one one thing that we have learned is that European policymaking processes are multi-level processes. And the JRC, okay, it is quite a large DG and, and has a lot of scientific stuff, but we are dependent on good science being provided at the national and the subnational levels as well, also to inform policy processes there and ultimately to inform policy processes at the EU level. So we need partners, basically. And we know there are partners and they are excellent, but we, we need to understand where they are, what they do, and how we can, we can connect to them. Hmm. There's um, an obvious interest for JRC to reach out beyond uh, the EU level. I mean, our, our primary role is, of course, to advise policymaking at a European level. Um, however, things are, are connected, as Christian says. And there's also an important aspect, which is that, that 70% of the research that JRC is doing relates to policy implementation. And policy implementation is not done in Brussels, but on the ground in uh, EU member states and, and it has, has an even clearer impact on, on the regional and the city level. And to, uh, I mean, to reach out to, to work with those regions not only is advantageous to uh, the regions, but it also helps us to understand, um, allows us to draw lessons about uh, policy design and uh, formulation at, um, at European level. So there's, a, there's kind of a feedback loop, which is ultimately very uh, relevant for us as well. So it's, it's, a, it's basically a win-win situation, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes sense. So I think for listeners, it's, it's interesting, of course, to hear about your projects and what you're doing, but maybe even more interesting to hear what you've learned while you're doing it. So let's talk a bit about this, this mapping and fact-finding. Um, firstly, Christian, you, you already mentioned that you found a landscape that's quite fragmented. Now, I take it that means the various parts are not well connected to each other. Does it also mean that they're very diverse? And so is Europe a collection of countries and regions with broadly similar um, 
but disjointed science advice systems? Or is it a collection of very different and incommensurable uh, disjointed science advice systems? I think it's a good question. And I, I think actor categories are probably the same. So, you know, you have the scientific, the academic institutions, you have the Academy of Science, you have the, the ministries, then you have sometimes intermediary bodies. But they, even though that there seem to be broad similarities in that, they all assume different functions within these science policy processes. So you can't compare the, the, the role of the German academy, like the Leopoldina, with one, for instance, in, in one of the Baltic states, or even within the Baltic states. There, there are fundamental differences in how they engage with the academic communities and the, the, the policymaking world. So I think it's an image of diversity and fragmentation, but maybe it's, it is a bit difficult to present an overview or, or real results because we've held four country-specific workshops so far looking into uh, Latvia, Denmark, Belgium, and Estonia. So we have a good idea of what's going on in these countries. We have the overview data from the survey, but we, we can't sort of make a definitive statement on whether there are particular patterns um, in, 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 in Europe that, that emerge. Yeah, indeed. I mean, during these these workshops, um, even though the situation in every country is fundamentally different in some ways and the, the governance structures are different, we did see the same issues uh, reappearing uh, over and over again, like, uh, I mean, to name just one lack of incentive for researchers to engage with policymakers. So the, the classic things that, that come back uh, over and over again. And I mean, of course, if we then look at the regional level, um, the diversity is even bigger um, because the competencies of regions within member states are, are very different. The diversity is even amplified at that level. So it's, it's really difficult to get a, a good overview of that. But, but, but I think if we're talking about uh, common challenges, yes, that's indeed what we, what we found. There are certain things that are shared across member states, but then there are also clearly country-specific challenges. Like if, for instance, uh, in Estonia, there, there was a lot of talk about the informality of relations between, uh, between the scientific world and the policymaking world, as in uh, we have a minister calling a particular scientist uh, on his mobile or her mobile. So it is a, a shared challenge, but it, it has different weight in different countries. So there are some countries that have more formalized science advice structures where this informality may be less of a challenge than, for instance, in a, in a small country where the formalization hasn't yet taken place or moves into sort of more competitive science advice markets. They may also differ in, in, in different countries uh, between Denmark and Sweden, for instance, where Again, a lot of science advice is, is contracted out to universities and they have different experiences with that. Some benefits uh, in terms of better research maybe or better, better scientific input uh, appear, but then there are also challenges like uh, the declining knowledge base inside the ministries. Um, so, you know, there are, there are challenges that, that are very sort of unique to the particular settings of member states, even if they are they look similar in other countries. So, okay, so this then suggests the need to understand the national context and indeed the regional context, as you said, Stein, um, which the systems are embedded in, or else you can't make sense of the systems themselves, or at least you can't really make much use of what you've learned, I suppose. But then this makes me wonder, um, I mean, even just thinking about Belgium, that's a whole big can of worms. I mean, there are probably very few people in the world 
who have a good understanding of the political system in Belgium yeah. anyway. <laughs> and that's before you even get to talking about science advice structures. And that's just one country out of 27. And then you have the added complexity of hundreds of different regions and cities and so on, all with their own systems. So I guess my question is, aren't you biting off rather more than you can chew? Is, is it really possible for the European Commission or anyone with the best will in the world to come to useful general conclusions with this kind of study? Uh, I mean, again, I'll maybe focus a bit more on, on the sub-national level. And, and from that perspective, as things currently stand, there is no clear view on the, on the situation for science advice structures at, at local regional level and how they are connected to national uh, systems. Um, and for this reason, part of the project that we are now embarking on Part of the budget is set aside for a mapping study, uh, so to look at science advice structures at a local and regional level. I mean, I don't think we can hope to map the full range and depth of, of, of existing initiatives, but just to get a bit of a clearer picture. Um, I mean, for regions and cities, they do not want to reinvent the wheel and set up uh, fully-fledged science advice structures by themselves because they also operate in a national context and there's uh, plenty of, of resources uh, there that they can tap into. Also international, I mean, the, as I said, the JRC is offering plenty of uh, data and um, evidence for uh, regions to, to work with. Uh, and this is important because, I mean, while they can make use of, of national level um, data and science advice, uh, there are also needs that are really specific to regions and cities. And, and I think that this is one of the things that, that COVID has also shown because the, the epidemiological situation or, or the, let's say, the response that was needed really needed to be tailored to more granular data at, at regional and local level. And, uh, and this kind of tailored science advice uh, is really needed for, for regions and cities. Hmm. I think you shouldn't forget that it's not only us who, who are working on these mapping exercises. So there, there's a lot of um, activities within the member states and you have certainly heard about the Finnish Sophie initiative. There's something similar going on in the Czech Republic. And we are trying to bring this knowledge together in, in our workshops and to write up based on, on these inputs as well, country profiles as much as we can. And okay, we, we are intending to continue with the workshop series for quite some time still. Uh, given that there's a lot of interest driven by, by COVID and, and by EU policy initiatives in uh, strengthening these uh, science for policy ecosystems. So we are indeed not doing this on our own and, and we just hope to bring all these different projects together so that we, there's sort of a mutual learning space. Yeah, I mean, that's logical. And I was perhaps being a bit unfair in my criticism a minute ago because you didn't really present it as you guys, the JRC, collecting all the information and figuring it all out. You described it more as bringing people together to help them to explain and understand their own and each other's systems. And I guess if that works, it doesn't much matter if it's also written down somewhere centrally or not. Exactly. And, and I think you should also not completely um, disregard the fact that even within the member states, if you look at different sectoral science advice systems, they are diverse, different actors, different processes in place. And even to go even more granular, if we, we look, for instance, at the JRC, because we did a study on the JRC's response to, to COVID-19, 
you can see that different directorates within the JRC interact in different ways with the, with the policy DGs they usually interact with. So it becomes very complex and so we, we can only expect to draw some broad lessons and maybe connect it to certain institutional uh, configurations. Mm. So we have a very diverse landscape, okay. But I mean, Europe itself is also very diverse, so that and that's not really a surprise. And indeed, we're supposed to subscribe to the idea that diversity is a strength rather than a weakness. Why isn't that also the case here? Um, it's both, I guess. It's, it's a double-edged sword a little bit. So on the one hand, different processes in place can help uh, learning lessons for what, what works best under what co uh, conditions. So that's certainly useful. But then if people are not aware of who is giving the advice at what's in, in, in which country on a certain issue and uh, don't know how to reach out to these persons or even uh, hold them accountable, then it gets uh, there are some clear disadvantages in that. Let's dig a bit more into the details of what you discovered. We've talked about the, the mapping, so the descriptive part, but is there also an evaluative element? Are you trying to come to conclusions about which systems work well and which are not so good? So evaluation is also part of the ecosystems project because, as I, as I mentioned, um, the questions we ask the participants in the workshops are what works well and what doesn't work so well and, and, and why. Um, also, if you look at the survey, we are also asking about the qualities of uh, ecosystems. So if people strongly agree with the statement like uh, the system is strongly fragmented, uh, no one knows what the other person does, um, then this is obviously an evaluation. The problem is that on the one hand, if the idea is to compare systems across Europe, for instance from state to state, the, the data is not really comparable because it's so context specific, the evaluations, and they are normally undertaken by local experts. They, they have their particular lens on the problems. Uh, so so that's, that's difficult in terms of comparability. And the survey data, on average, we have 10 responses per country. So we have about 300 responses. Um, so so that's, that's roughly the average. But there's a huge, huge variation between what the number of responses we got from different countries. So again, we can't actually go down into granular level, but we have to identify the, the, the problems and challenges uh, and uh, shortcomings uh, maybe of systems that are shared across Europe. So we are trying to get some idea of what, what works and what the problems are, but we don't have systematic database for that. But we are currently in, in collaboration with DG for a structural reform support, DG reform. We are currently looking into developing some kind of dashboard of indicators that could provide us some ideas on whether the science for policy ecosystems perform well in relation to openness, transparency, fragmentation and, and coordination. But this is still uh, quite an embryonic project and uh, indicator construction comes with lots of caveats and challenges uh, in terms of methodology, in terms of data quality you need. So this is uh, this will, will still take some while to develop this, this, this dashboard. So if I understand rightly, the dream is that you might be able to one day uh, plug in all the various diverse sources of data into this central dashboard. Then you'll be able to see 
for instance, such and such a country scores well on transparency, but not so well on accessibility or whatever. Is that the idea? I'm not sure whether that's the dream, but I think the idea is that, that such a dashboard may help structure the dialogue on the ground. Uh, and to ensure that, you know, if, if you see a country that may not score very highly on transparency, but another country that's scoring very well, that they tr look at their practices and, and what are the en 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 enabling factors of that. But as I said, this is um, a very complex process, as we know from, from governance indicators and regulatory quality indicators and impact of science indicators. Um, so we, we'll see what, what will be the final outcome of this project. Well, okay. If you're not evaluating things directly, and I, I absolutely take your point about why that's hard to do, but can I ask you then to, to speculate a bit more generally, based on the evidence you've gathered so far, especially perhaps with identifying commonalities, what do you think the general state of play is? Do you have a hunch about what this hypothetical dashboard might reveal about science advice in Europe if it existed? Well, I mean, I think uh, across these workshops, uh, there, there was a, a number of things um, um, coming back. Um, um, lack of uh, institutionalized mechanisms um, uh, of knowledge brokerage was, was one. Lack of incentives for researchers to engage with policy. So we did uh, come across a number of themes that come back again and again, independently of the specific policy and, and uh, context and governance structure of the, the member state concerned. So yes, there were many commonalities, um, I would say. Yeah. Uh, how about the survey results, Christian? Uh, in terms of survey results, so as, as I mentioned, one of the commonly perceived challenges was, was the level of fragmentation. The problem of new science providers and new knowledge brokers to, to enter the, the processes and to engage with the processes. Um, issues with transparency, so you know, public scrutiny of the science advice processes was not particularly easy. And also the lack of formalization was noted upon by, by many of the respondents. As a, as a negative, right? That more formalization would be good. Yeah, 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 indeed. And then, as, as Stane already mentioned, the, the incentives, in particular for the scientists, to spend more time and resources on policy engagement, and also the, the lack of institutional support. So, you know, are there sort of knowledge brokerage units, uh, knowledge mobilization units, policy engagement units in, in the universities or not? Uh, this has been identified as a problem that it doesn't really exist. And then from the policymaker side, for instance, what I thought was quite interesting is that the engagement with evidence was partial. So, you know, they, they didn't rely on sort of a broad overview of scientific knowledge they could use to, to take decisions, but they were sort of relying on, on a limited number of studies, which is interesting because at the same time, the survey respondent, uh, respondents mentioned that uh, the policymakers in general have quite a good overview of where they can get good uh, scientific input into the policymaking process. So I thought that was that was quite interesting because they, is it a deliberate choice not to consult too many studies due to time constraints? This information, obviously, a survey can never provide, but I thought that it's quite interesting. It, it is interesting. I had a look through the survey as well. And a lot of the time it was that, uh, I'm not sure if this means I'm very cynical or very optimistic, but it was the positive results that really stood out to me. Um, and one of them was indeed people saying things like, well, there's actually quite a high degree of trust by policy make well. Okay, 
people say the trust is there. You didn't ask about degree of trust. Um, but also that policymakers can distinguish different kinds of evidence and can distinguish scientific evidence from other influences like lobbying or whatever. So that's that's good. But then despite that, there's this really damning result I saw where you could only find, I think it was 16 or 18% of people to disagree with the claim that policymakers use evidence post hoc to justify decisions after they've made them rather than to like inform their decision-making in advance. And this is when we're all in a in a period of pandemic with COVID ringing in our ears. And we would really hope that at least now, surely, our leaders respond to the science rather than cherry-picking from it. That honestly surprised me a bit. And I wonder if that links to what you just said about policymakers using the science, but only a subset of it. I'm asking you to speculate, really, like what underpins that result. But but I think, okay, you, you, I mean, you should understand that COVID was probably a very peculiar period in science advice because it was so fast. There was so little knowledge out there that I can see how policymakers didn't have the time to really collect systematic uh, reviews of uh, on a certain policy issue or scientific issue. But obviously, there are different types of using research. It's like more instrumental to really inform policies, more conceptual to get a broad understanding. And then obviously, there's the tactical use as well. Policymaking processes are about negotiating and finding majorities and, and these things. So it, it doesn't surprise me as much maybe that, that policymakers do not always seek uh, to have a full, full overview of, of scientific knowledge even if we, from a scientific viewpoint, may wish them to do so. Yeah. An important aspect is policymakers' uh, skills and capacities to deal with scientific evidence in a, in a good way. I mean, to distinguish good from less good evidence, um, to, to know where they can source the, the right types of evidence. Um, so it's, it's maybe not always a tactical or on purpose that they do some cherry picking or, or only have a limited view. It maybe also has to do with some lack of training. And this is uh, something that uh, the JRC is uh, developing uh, right now is, is these um, uh, trainings uh, to teach these skills to policymakers. So we're going to have some training courses on evidence-informed policymaking in Science Meets Regions for local and regional policymakers. I think that's also an important part of the problem. In, in, in fact, just to, to complement this, it's not only that we design training modules and materials and make them available widely, but uh, my colleagues have also been working on, on competence frameworks where they lay out sort of systematically what kind of dimensions different competences have, what different skill levels imply uh, in, in terms of what the policymaker or the scientist need to be able to do in practice. Um, so the training modules are actually linked to sort of more structured competence frameworks. Okay, good to hear. Is there anything else you're doing to respond to that? Well, again, my specific angle on this is, is uh, from the regional perspective. Um, so the, the project we have running is actually taking a topical uh, focus um, to the problem in the sense that we invite regions. We, we have launched a call for expression of interest for regions and cities to come forward with topics that are relevant to them. Uh, we've we've uh, listed a number of priority topics, the digi digital and green transitions and everything uh, related to recovery from the COVID pandemic. So what we are doing is not discussing abstract structures of science advice with them, uh, but rather looking at it through a topical lens. So we ask them to come forward with specific policy issues. We help them with scientific advice. 
Uh, we bring together stakeholders around these issues. We help them with citizen engagement as well around these issues. Uh, and so we hope that by bringing in evidence um, and, and helping to build relations between science and, and policy at these uh, governance levels, that we will help administrations to then build further on that uh, for uh, science advice in general. So we think this, this topical approach is, is very important at this level of governance. Uh, another thing is um, we are uh, looking into setting up a pairing scheme for uh, researchers and policymakers at, at local and regional level. Um, it's still early days, so this is still under development, but we want to give um, local and regional policymakers the opportunity to spend some time with researchers that are working on the topics that interest them. And finally, uh, the thing I already mentioned is um, the, uh, the training component. So um, offering training courses uh, I mean, JRC has been in the past training its own scientists and is now deploying that across Europe uh, through a train-the-trainer system, so training scientists on how to engage with policymakers. But as I said, the reverse is also very much needed. So um, teaching policymakers how to deal with evidence, distinguish uh, good from, from less sound evidence, etc. So this training component will also be um, very important. And, and from my side, I mean, these, these workshops, even though they, they have a strong analytical component, they actually turn out to be quite important for capacity building. So we, we have, we are sort of more facilitating in, in, in this case. So, um, we have seen after presentations of, of certain schemes, such as, um, the network of science advisors and ministries in Estonia, that other member states and other representatives, they get in touch with us and ask us, can we have more information on that? And then we put them in touch with the colleagues in Estonia. So, so we have this from various sites. And then what is sort of the latest that is um, also still under development is that we, we have assembled a coalition of eight member states to submit uh, for European funding, technical assistance funding uh, provided by DG Reform, a project to create and strengthen networks of science advisors and analytical units within ministries of member states. So a bit like this Estonian model, but uh, depending obviously on the, the specific context in each of the eight member states, different actors within the ministries are either connected or being set up or, and, and we, we are helping by bringing the right actors around the table, by um, helping uh, with the analytical preparatory work, uh, so what, what kind of structures are in place, etc. And th this would be like a separate project that if it is being approved, it would start in, in March 2022. Mm -hmm. And then finally, one, one other embryonic project is to try and help universities to understand the value of knowledge mobilization and policy engagement units. So we are trying to understand what, what's out there in different countries and how we can connect these different schemes and to sort of make a case for such institutional support for policy engagement, uh, also on the academics, on the research side. And in general, um, what's the balance between these ideas and projects coming bottom up from the countries themselves versus being kind of structures that you want to nurture because of what you've observed from the top down? That's not meant to be a loaded question, actually. I'm just interested in, in the kind of process and origin of the ideas. 
So in the case of the ecosystem series, we are learning basically from the member states what works well. And then we draw the attention of other member states to these projects and, and try to connect them. Obviously, we have been working on science for policy for quite a while. And you know that the introspective best practice handbook, Science for Policy, that you, you have been discussing on this podcast as well. Uh, so there's, we have a lot of material to share, but in terms of institutions and processes, we are very much learning and connecting and facilitating rather than trying to claim that we have superior knowledge of how such systems should be structured. Yeah, and in the case of Science Meets Regions, it's, it's clearly also focused on, on the bottom-up perspective. So we leave the ownership of the processes and the projects uh, to the regions and we support where we can, but the, um, the fundamental initiative lies with the, the regions and JRC tries to bring in specific scientific support or help with with the, the participatory approaches um, from a more methodological point of view with citizen engagement techniques but fundamentally it's it's a bottom-up process and here's the predictable killer question do you have evidence about the impact of what you're doing well for science meets regions we go back to 2018 uh, well, actually a bit further, but the first really structured approach dates back to a pilot project from 2018, uh, which was concluded uh, early last year. And we drafted a final report of the project looking at various, um, well, I won't call them indicators because it was not extremely formalized, um, but we looked at, at various parameters like, did our intervention actually lead to uh, some noticeable change in policy? So was the, 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 the solution of the issue improved or, or facilitated by this, this intervention? Um, did it contribute to uh, more lasting relationships between policymakers and scientists at, um, at the local and regional level? In this pilot phase, we had over 25 events taking place and processes taking place in 22 member states in total, I think we were uh, present. We didn't see a success in all cases. We didn't see tangible outcomes in, in all cases, but in many cases, uh, there was a, indeed a successful outcome in the sense that it allowed administrations to build on the results of these events and, and really make progress in the policy issues that they uh, were uh, facing. And also um, in terms of relationships between policy makers and scientists, many of them indicated that this initiative had contributed to building uh, more bridges between uh, science and policy. Uh, Policymaking. So we do have some uh, limited evidence uh, that this approach is successful. Also gathering from the massive interest that this sparked, uh, I think there is a need for this kind of instrument at local and regional level. I mean, the question is always, um, would these regions and cities have embarked upon a process like this anyhow? Were we the decisive factor or not? Uh, that's that's a question that is very difficult to answer, but I think there is some evidence that this should be continued and hopefully in the end, uh, in a few years, lead to some kind of permanent support for evidence and foreign policy making at local and regional uh, level. And maybe for the Ecosystems Project, I mean, we started in September 2020 uh, with the first workshop, so it's quite recent and it fell into the COVID-19 period which has really uh, intensified and accelerated interest in science for policy and science advice. So it's 
very hard for us to really sort of attribute causality there. I mean, there might be a local champion promoting science advice in, in the parliament. There might be sort of this recognition that COVID-19 really requires better science advice structures. Or there might be this lovely interactive workshop that the JRC held uh, in, uh, in October that, that, that really changed the reality on the ground. So it's, it's difficult, but as Steen also said, the fact that we have uh, so much interest in this uh, workshop series with more than 500 people so far, the fact that for this um, multi-country project, it was easy for us to find eight member states with strong interest, um, I think that shows that our work at least contributes to, to moving the parts a bit. Well, yeah. And then since you're here, let me ask you a related question that's a bit more general. Do I detect more interest in the past few years, say, certainly since the last European elections, um, on the part of the Commission in the whole question of evidence-informed policymaking? There seems to be rather a lot more emphasis on it than there used to be, and not just from the JRC where you'd expect to see it. Okay, so so I think one also has to see all the JSC projects that we are doing on the science for policy uh, interface and ecosystems in the context of a broader shift at the European level. Um, so there's a lot of interest in bringing scientific knowledge into the policy process. And most recently, there, there was, for instance, the early lessons learned from the COVID crisis where there's a clear reference to the need to better coordinate um, science advice uh, processes uh, at EU level, but also within the member states. There is uh, something called the Better Regulation Initiative, uh, recent communication that provides procedural guidance on how policies are to be made at the European level. And again, there, um, there's a reference that the scientific knowledge is a cornerstone for better regulation and that it's critical to reach out to the research communities at an, at an early phase to have better informed policymaking. And finally, recently, the colleagues from the service that's responsible for structural reform support or TG reform, they have spelled out what, what you could call a vision for public administration, fit for the future, fit for the present as well, for both. And uh, again, they are mentioning how important it is to build structures and processes that ensure that scientific knowledge is fed into the policymaking decisions and the, the public administrative uh, processes. So this, it's not only in the member states where we see a lot of interest, it's also at the EU level. Um, uh, so I think this is really a field that's booming in a way, and, and we are obviously very happy for it because we, as science and knowledge service of the European Commission, we it's our button bread to inform policymaking, and it's nice to see other people and organizations uh, being interested in that as well. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And I have one last question which relates to what we talked about earlier, but I wanted to save it for last in case you have any um, exclusive tidbits you'd like to share with your rapt audience here. Um, it's about building the community. It's one thing to say, as you did, that you want to kind of, in a vague way, create a community that talks more to each other and is more interconnected. Uh, and that's great. But is there also a vision in your mind for something specific and, and more structured? Do you have like a new platform or organization in mind? Or do you just want an organically better connected network? So 
I think what, what what's missing and what, what we are also trying to address uh, through this connecting all these different communities, what, what's missing in Europe is um, is in fact something that connects the different ecosystems. So there, there are different mechanisms, for instance, the European Science Advisors Forum, the ESAF, uh, which brings together officially nominated science advisors from the member states. It's a fantastic network. But if you see ecosystems as sort of broader organisms, say, with many, many different actors, one single representative cannot really represent a whole ecosystem. So the idea of, of creating this community that we are pursuing is to complement sort of this sort of more formal mechanism that, that exists. And it's, it's also interesting that the International Network for, for Government Science Advice, the INCSA, that they have for all world regions, regional chapters, but not in Europe. So there, there are efforts to create a European chapter as well, which, which may be a natural home at some point for the ecosystems community. But we'll have to, these are again um, processes that are at a very early stage and we will have to see what's, what's going to happen there. Yeah, that, I mean, that's well noted, but it's still interesting to hear even these early kind of hints about that kind of thing. Um, on which intriguing note, it's time for me to say thank you very much, Christian Krieger and uh, Stein Velayen, for sharing your work and the insights that you've derived from it. If people want to take part in one of your projects or indeed get their hands on some of that sweet, sweet seed funding you mentioned, how might they do that? Um, there is a website which gathers all our information on uh, science for policy, um, which you could find in the show notes, I suppose. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll put that in the show notes then. Uh, okay, for Science Meets Regions, there is um, a website on the EU Science Hub, um, which um, uh, which you can link to. I mean, I think it's enough to go to Google Science Meets Regions, and you'll end up probably on the on the right page. But uh, I can I can uh, provide the link uh, with pleasure. Great. Well, uh, that's a wrap. Thanks again, and good luck with the rest of the projects. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Toby. It was a pleasure. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.